The subject under discussion today is what is translation. We're going to explore it in four dialogues of about 15 minutes each. That's to say it's going to be a discussion and not a lecture. I'm Oliver Taplin, I'm a professor of classics here at Oxford and I've worked especially during my career on Greek tragedy and I've always taken translation, translation of literature, very seriously. Ever since as an undergraduate I went to classes by the, the great Richmond Latimer on translation. I've even tried it my hand at it myself. I've tried translating both Homer and Greek tragedy for modern performance. So I have some experience of translation in practice as well as trying to think about it in theory. And I have a partner in the discussion today. Thanks, Oliver. I'm uh, Lorna Hardwick. I'm professor in classical studies at the Open University. And most of my work has been in Greek cultural history and the way in which it has been used, transformed, reinterpreted, particularly in the very recent period. I've concentrated very much on drama, on poetry and also historiography. And in all of those areas, translation in one form or another is a crucial part of how Greek and Roman texts are part of ongoing poetry, theatre and of human sensibility generally. One of the reasons that translation particularly interests me is that for many people it's the fir their first experience of Greek and Roman literary culture. So translation in that sense is something that is life enhancing, it's an actual agency of, of survival for the ancient material. And just to give an example, many people will know Keats's poem on first looking into Chapman's Homer, 1817, but drawing on Chapman's translation of Homer of the late 16th century. So immediately you've got an example of how communication of translation across time as well as across languages. And there's also, of course, communication across cultures because Greek and Latin texts are dispersed and they provide a point of communication, of discussion between peoples globally, for which, of course, translation of various kinds is absolutely vital. Yeah, I think that gets us into uh, the question we've set ourselves in this first discussion. Is there a core meaning of translation? I would suggest that actually I, I wouldn't want to over-concentrate on the word translation and go into its etymology and that kind of thing, not as a technical term, because I don't think translation is something that is clearly distinguishable from making a version or, or turning from one language to another or even copying or imitating. Perhaps essentially all these things are making an equivalent. We're especially talking about a verbal equivalent from one language to another, or it could be from one period of um, a language to another. Uh, not only is a modern Chaucer a translation in some sense of Chaucer, but even a modern Shakespeare is a translation. But translation isn't something that is exclusively verbal. I mean, an interest in drama immediately brings you to face to face with other kinds of application of the idea of translation. Take clothing, for example. Any production of a play is going, in some sense or other, to translate, make an equivalent of clothing. If you do a production in modern dress, you are translating into modern dress the dress of the original, whatever form it might be, and actually translating into modern dress is something that has a surprisingly wide range of possibilities. Or translating dance from one culture or one period to another, translating rituals. What about something like sitting down to a meal? That's something that could be very different from one culture to, to another, and from one time to another, even more, say, a wedding. 
it's actually very interesting to think of these as translations. But I think all the same, we're going to have to concentrate mainly on the central application of the notion, which is making an equivalent of one text or one crafted work or one work of literature from one language into another. Well, I think that brings out very well the way in which words aren't actually independent of their context. The context in how they're first used in the ancient text, the source text, or of how they're read and understood in the language of the translation, which is usually called the target language. So there's always some kind of communication, a conversation, sometimes of course a conflict between those, between their cultures. Can I just check then, we're going to use source language and target language, we can use those as technical terms, so to speak. I think think, those are the terms that are most generally used, both among translation studies, um, scholars, um, and also more widely in various other subject contexts. Good, we won't explain those every time they come up then. I think it's interesting that um, this discussion about what translation is, what it involves, is something that's actually quite prominent in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I mean, Cicero in the first century BCE, uh, when the Romans actually needed Greek texts and ideas to be translated into Latin, to be discussed in a Latin context. And Cicero distinguished between translating word for word and translating in a way that conveyed style and effects. I mean, the term he used was um, to put it into a language which conforms to our ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, of course, was translating the ancient Greek orators, Eschines and Demosthenes especially, for use in Roman public life. So for those purposes, the orator's words had to seem as if they were written in the language in which they were being spoken. He had to take the Greek approaches, the Greek ideas, and present them in the Latin language, but also in that Roman context. But of course, Roman concern with what translation involved wasn't confined to the sphere of public politics. The Roman poet Horace, for instance, also rejected a word-for-word approach to translation. In his Ars Poetica, he urged that translation should produce work that was actually aesthetically pleasing, was pleasing to the ear that painted word pictures, and actually had a creative impact into the language in which it was being translated. And obviously he was looking at that very much from the point of view of a poet. Yeah, and that's something we're going to have to come back to later. Uh, Absolutely. So I think the distinction probably that's useful at this stage is the distinction between merely rewording and actually rewriting in the new language, which can still be a close translation. But of course, there are more distant relatives which involve recreating or even reassembling. So at the one extreme, one can see this kind of literal word for word. The other extreme, I don't think there is any clear border at all, is there? It's difficult. Is Ezra Pound's versions of Propertius, is that a translation? Or is Christopher Logue's um, Homer-based poems, are they translation? Heine Müller's plays? These are all works that have an interaction with the source text, even quote the source text. Are they translations or not? Actually, I'm, I'm not sure that it's a very productive question to ask are they translations or not and sort of tick some things say some things do tick the box translations translation other things must be banished and not allowed the label translation i don't find that very productive yeah i think i think that's right i mean there's two things i think that are important one is the 
relationship between the new text and the source text. I mean, you, you mentioned, for instance, there might be excerpts mm -hmm. within, you know, a wider area of, of creativity. The new writer might have a particular attitude towards the kind of language that they wanted to use to present what, what was in the ancient work. So that's one area, relationship, I think. And the other area I think that's very interesting is when you're moving a text not only across a language, time and culture, but also across genre. So, for instance, you might be moving from the epic poetry of Homo and Virgil into film, for instance, which was a medium not available to the ancient writers, but in many ways has proved to be you know, startlingly revealing the way in which the ancient writers constructed their poems. When that's said, probably the most important thing is to be clear about what the new writer is doing. So that if you're sitting if you're sitting in a classroom being asked to translate a few sentences from, I don't know, Julius Caesar's De Bello Gallico, then clearly a film script is not what is required. It's supposed to be something you're supposed to be doing something that produces you know, reproduces the language, you know, fairly fairly closely. You have to bring the use that is being Absolute, made into abso play. Absolutely. Yes. But as yeah. soon as you're moving out, you know, into creativity, reinterpretation, use in another sphere, then I think you're you're looking at a very wide range of possibilities. I think that's probably our first one. There's an anecdote about this that always annoys me in a productive way. It's said that the great uh, Cambridge classical scholar Richard Bentley, having looked at Alexander Pope's translation of the Iliad, said, a very pretty poem, Mr Pope, but you must not call it Homer. And he really there is sort of trying to lay down the law on what you can or can't call Homer, hence what you can or can't call translation. It's actually a great irony that that poem wonderful poem of Pope has always been known as Pope's Homer. So Bentley said you couldn't call it Homer, but everyone else always has. And it's quite interesting that Christopher Logue's poems based on Homer, Faber now published those as Logue's Homer. What matters isn't the label, it doesn't matter whether you, you can call it Homer or not, whether you call it a translation or not, whether you call it a version or a free version or whatever. It's the relationship that matters, it's how is it connected? What is this version being made for? And then it's very striking what a wide variety of literary phenomena come under this umbrella. Well, I think it's certainly um, true that if you look at the history of English literature, major writers have been very aware of the different kinds of approaches that they might bring to translation. Um, for example, Dryden is very well known for his translation of Virgil's Aeneid at the end of the 17th century was writing in a very self-conscious way in his preface to Ovid's epistles about the three kinds of translation that he had been thinking about. The first of those was metaphrase, um, what he called verbal copying. This is the word by word and line by line approach, which he didn't have a particularly high opinion of. The second was paraphrase, as he called it, by which he meant keeping the author in view, but concentrating on the sense rather than the words. And that was, he said, his, his prime aim. And then the third category was what he called imitation, a creative adaptation, we would probably call it. And he professed to be rather doubtful about that, though in practice, I think he did go into that kind of practice. But he said that imitation could do the greatest wrong to the memory and reputation of the dead.
And that, I think, really reminds us that there are differences in approach to translation according to what the translator has in mind. If the translator wants to attain a literary status, um, then clearly they're going to want to differentiate themselves from other people who've been working in that tradition. And sometimes it does rebound. I mean, there's the famous story, for instance, about Robert Browning in the 19th century, who was, in addition to his, you know, to his own poetry, very interested in translation. And he produced a translation of Aeschylus's Agamemnon, in which he tried to convey the shape and the, the sharpness and something of the difficulty of Aeschylus's language. And Browning was told in no uncertain terms by one of his reviewers, the, the poet Augusta Webster, that uh, Mr. Browning's translation of Aeschylus was all very fine, provided that we could turn to Aeschylus to interpret it. So, you know, you, I've, I've heard a version where it said, you know, thank goodness we've got the Aeschylus exactly. so that we can tell what it is that Browning was saying. Exactly so, which I think is actually a very interesting sideline on how 19th century literary people assumed familiarity with the Greek text and felt that people could actually be able to use that to, to criticise Browning. But it's also a very nice sideswipe at Browning, who was, I think, a friend of hers. She was part of the Browning circle, you know, uh, about the contorted nature of the English language when it was actually trying to produce an equivalence, as he would have regarded it, to what Aeschylus was doing in the Greek. I think I'm right in that the three kinds of translation that Dryden explored, George Steiner's book After Babel, which I found very interesting, actually does when it comes to the crunch, more or less follow the same tripartite division, even though there's been another 250 years of material to illustrate them with. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's true. I mean, there's, certainly there's a lot of scholarly debate about what Dryden himself was actually getting at, and certainly of how his own work does or doesn't cross those various categories. But almost all the approaches which have been brought to bear on translation since have actually picked up a conversation with Dryden in in one way or another. Where I think Steiner's approach is different is that he, in parts of his analysis, uses um, a vocabulary that's very much based on violence, on conflict, whereas Pope Dryden, and certainly the scholarly work that's been done on them, is emphasising an alternative approach, which is very much one of conversation. And that, I think, is quite an interesting contrast in the way in which various scholars have actually approached the whole business of the relationship between the source text and, and the target text. And another thing we may come back to. Indeed.